Hi, thanks for joining. I'm JJ Walsh, based in Hiroshima, Japan. It's a beautiful spring day today, and I had a chance to talk with live streaming guru Dave in Osaka. Dave has inspired me to do more live streaming, given me some great advice. And in this talk here, he gives us all some insights into some of the technology that he's using, some of the equipment, and his philosophy for not only live streaming, but also his philosophy for traveling and enjoying travel around Japan and wanting to share that with people who are in the audience from around the world following his live streams and engaging with them. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Thank you so much for joining. If you want to learn more about the work that I do, check out inboundambassador.com and you can also find me on buymeacoffee.com slash jjwalsh to get some bonus information and insights from the series. And 11 today, 211. And we have Dave and Osaka, amazing live streamer joining us today. Thanks for joining, Dave. Good morning, Joy. <laughs> How you doing? I'm doing good. I'm here in my hotel. Yeah, you've had this amazing journey. You've been traveling all over the place. Yeah, I was uh, up through the past month. I've been in Tohoku uh, almost the whole time there and just a little brief time now. I've been in Tokyo for the past few days, getting back to the city life, I guess. Okay, it looks like I might have done something weird and we have lost our screen. <laughs> Okay. Has anyone, anyone joined us? Can you see the screen? I see the messages. Yeah, people are here. Oh, okay. People are joining. Yeah. Thanks for joining. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Hi Jeff. Hi, Hi, Dean. So you can also see all the messages. Is that right? Yeah. Okay, good. And that's one, the one thing we're doing today. Dave and I are both on HAPS. So we're trying this live stream from HAPS. Uh, for the first time. Usually I use a different system. Um, but Dave, one of the benefits for you as a guest is you're able to see the comments as well as I am. Uh, usually yeah. it's only me that can see that and read it oh, out. Really? So, so that's definitely a benefit of using this system. Mm -hmm. Now you are a big Periscope guy. How are you feeling about the end of Periscope? Tell us a bit about your journey how are you transitioning well yeah i'm very obviously very sad along with um, most of the people in the community especially people who've been using it for the past six years today is the sixth anniversary of periscope it was released today six years ago so kind of a bittersweet day today since there's only a few days left um yeah i'm very sad to see it go uh the app is going i know the twitter live function is going to continue and I hope they're gonna to continue to develop that and especially open up the API so people can multi-stream to it and still uh, access everybody on on Twitter. Uh, but until then, I'm going to use, uh, I'm gonna continue multi-streaming. I think uh, a lot of people have learned the lesson that not to put all your eggs in one basket, 
especially with this situation. So, uh, and, and that's been happening for the past few months. People have been multi-streaming, just uh, uh, trying to attract people from the different platforms and growing the communities on the different platforms. And yeah, going forward, I'm gonna do that. I'm using uh, Prism Live Studio to multi-stream and apps also to multi-stream. So yeah, uh, that's, that's cool. the plan at least. Well, you, you have been such a great inspiration to me getting started with live streaming. I remember I just starting on Periscope and I'm walking around trying to do some live streams. And then <coughs> I found you and I was following your live streams and I was so impressed. And you were on the Seeking Sustainability Live last year talking about yeah. uh, geisha culture and documenting some of the geisha dances. We've had Peter Macintosh on and you did yeah. some uh, connections with him in, in Kyoto, is that right? I met, yeah, I just met him one time at the uh, Erikaya, the, when the Maiko become the geiko, they present, present them to the public and they visit the different geisha houses. So. I ran into him there. I, I was familiar with him. He's obviously a big guy in the community, uh, in the geisha community, and just in Kyoto in general, uh, with his tours and the knowledge of the geisha, uh, that whole, uh, the Kariyukai. So I ran into him there, and yeah, I had, I had a chat with him. He's a fellow Canadian, and it was good to connect with him. And uh, yeah. That's great. <clears throat> yeah, he, he has so many great insights into geisha culture. So that was nice to talk to him after I talked to you because you had all those beautiful videos and photos from one of the performances. And then you told me he had helped arrange that for you. So he's making it more accessible to visitors. That's wonderful to see yeah. on both sides, right? The organizer and the spectator. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And Paprika Girl too. She has so much knowledge about all the, the kimono and the culture too. So yeah, that's right. And uh, she often comes to Kyoto. So you guys are in that same Kansai region, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, so in terms of live streaming, can you, let's just talk a little bit about the <coughs> technicals um, because you have such high quality, amazing live streams. For example, you were just in the Japan Alps showing everybody this beautiful cafe. Um, tell oh, us yeah. a little bit about like the technicals, how do you get such high quality footage while you're live streaming on location? Well, I think one huge help is uh, being in Japan. <laughs> that helps a lot. They have an, we have an amazing network, uh, amazing connection. Uh, I think a lot of people always say signal, people uh, who are broadcasting from Japan often have very clear signals. So I think we, we have that behind us. At the same time, we're paying a lot of money. It's very, very expensive. I think one of the most expensive in the world. And that's one of the things you're seeing, even the government intervening. I don't know how, how much that, that is just for show in the front, but they're intervening on reducing prices uh, because it is so expensive, but we do get that quality uh, of in the image. So that's one thing is, is uh, just the, the, the signal that we have here and the network that we have is, is very good. Uh, another thing is uh, being selective where you broadcast. So uh, if you do have a bad signal uh, and it's kind of iffy, maybe I just don't do it uh, a lot of times. Uh, if you're really, really serious, like I know some people are, they'll do a walkthrough too. They'll walk through where they're going to go. They'll plan the route. Uh, 
they see anything um, that's going to knock them off the knock the signal off, then they just won't do it. Uh, and another thing is you can do uh, open signal is another website. If you're going to different locations, uh, different countries, there's a, a website called open signal, which is a crowdsourcing uh, website. And it'll actually show you uh, <clears throat> how, how strong it is. People will report and say, uh, very good. If it's green, it's very good. Uh, if it's orange, not so good. If it's red, it means you know they didn't have anything. So uh, if you're going to other countries, remote locations, that helped me a lot too. Um, <clears throat> another thing is have, having a, the latest phone, <clears throat> the latest camera. I have a iPhone 12 Pro Max. So it's the, the latest version and it's just uh, amazing. The, the lens quality, <clears throat> the three lenses, it has super wide to... Uh, telephoto or the quality is incredible just and i came from iphone 10 <clears throat> and just that jump was amazing uh, in terms of the visuals so yeah i'm showing a screenshot from your video on youtube okay. right now and it's the quality of the the mountain view is just incredible and it's so crisp. And you said you were shooting in HD. Can you tell us a little bit about the cameras that you're using to get such great images? So um, in Pr Prism Live Studio is a uh, encoder and it's pretty powerful because you can set the, uh, the quality of your stream uh, for up to 1080. So, I think in order to do that, you have to have a very, very strong connection, and I did up there. So I thought I, I thought that kind of that panorama just demanded a, the highest quality, and uh, so that's what I did. I, I set it to 1080p, and I you can only do that through to YouTube. Uh, the other platforms you can't do that. So uh, if you're multi multi streaming, you can't do it in HD, but if you're if you're streaming directly to YouTube with Prism Live, you can set it to 1080 and you can set the frame rate higher too if you want. That'll really push it high. But you want to turn variable bit rate on. Variable bit rate is like it'll adjust to your connection and maximize it and also the people viewing too. So uh, that, that's what I did in, in, that, in that specific situation. Yeah. That... No, I didn't have my laptop team. That sounds... Sounds like good advice. Um, you also using a gimbal to make sure things are steady. Is that right? <clears throat> uh, yeah, because with multi-streaming, it does not tap into the phone's stabilization. So you do need a gimbal to uh, to make it as steady as possible. So yeah, I use a DJI OM4, the latest one, which is which is excellent. Awesome. Well, let's give a shout out to some of the comments here. Uh, Dean says, is there any American state where the Wi-Fi is as good as Japan? <laughs> I, don't I don't know. know. <laughs> I've never, I, I'm trying to think if I ever broadcast in the United States. I don't think I ever have. I've never broadcast in the United States. And Timo is asking, do you have your laptop there? Actually, when we were testing, you were on your laptop and now you're on your phone, right? And we found the connection was better on your phone this morning. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, it's, it's definitely much better here on this phone. Yeah. So how much are, can you give us a ballpark? Is it about 10,000 yen a month that you're paying for 
this great like cellular service because you said it's expensive i remember when i was on like a, a main plan it was about thirteen thousand a month they're not cheap right no there's no you know they, they used to have the uh unlimited data plans when we when we was on 3g we used to have the unlimited data plans that was great but i wasn't broadcasting that when it got to 4g uh that's when um they stopped it and uh any additional gigabyte was ten dollars and because you're broadcasting uh at the, you know if you're going a higher resolution you're using more uh it was expensive <laughs> i'll just say that it was very very expensive you can <clears> sometimes some, I, some great advice because i i i've been trying a few different things i'm trying not to pay too much every month um but i'm not sure if i can get around it because if you're live streaming all the time maybe you need to pay more and have the unlimited data is that what you're finding there's there's the new plan called a i don't know if you use softbank do you use softbank <clears throat> uh there's uh, i think you're on mute okay you, yeah it, okay. it changes uh depending <clears throat> on the region i'm in but also you're you're shooting in rural and i've had the most trouble trying to shoot in the rural areas on the go the connection even if i pay for an extra pocket wi-fi the connection is just not good enough right so you've been doing really well out in the middle of the mountains i i think it's softbank if you're dealing directly with softbank uh the connection is very good if you go with the um the other companies the smaller companies all they're doing is they're renting the bandwidth from softbank and uh docomo so i i think that they're getting a, a less than ideal uh speed so if you're going directly through <clears throat> excuse me if you're going directly through softbank <clears throat> i noticed it's much much faster if i've ever had any pocket wi-fi it's always just a little bit less of a quality so uh i think it going directly to the company is the most but again you're going to pay so much more yeah so yeah for uh doing multi-streaming uh interviews like i've been doing um every day just past 200 since last year <laughs> it's crazy but i'm usually using <laughs> ecamm and skype connection with the guest and then multi-streaming and the quality seems really good as long as people are both the guest and i are both on computers um mm -hmm. i've never tried it from my phone i can't imagine it would work very well um it's also the problem of not having the app on your phone so that's okay. that's a great thing about haps right that you could do it on your phone but sometimes i've seen yeah. that you do broadcast directly to youtube and you don't use haps um because the quality just wasn't as good is that right um sometimes yeah i don't know why maybe one app will be much clearer than the other so i i'll go on prism and i'll, I'll do it there or maybe i'll just stay on haps and sometimes who knows you just have to test it and one works better than the other you never know you just gotta just gotta keep on testing it that's what i find so yeah 
Well, let's switch gears a little bit and talk about this amazing trip that you're doing this month. Um, you were able to be in the Tohoku area uh, on kind of the 10-year anniversary of the Tohoku disaster. Tell us a little bit about uh, your visit there and uh, how you how you saw things um, 10 years later after the earthquake, tsunami, nuclear disaster. You went to two uh, key places. Looks like one in the museum and uh, you saw some of the uh, disaster buildings that they've kept there as kind of a living legacy of what happened. Uh, should we talk about that first? That just looks really powerful. Yeah, the two, uh, there was uh, Rikuzen Takata was the uh, one location and the other museum was in, uh, I think, that, I should say they all have museums. Like, you know, 10 years later, obviously it, everything is about the tsunami. Everything that happened, uh, you know, it's something you see everywhere. I, I was thinking about that when I was going there. Should I show anything or should I not? Well, you can't avoid it. Uh, it's something you can't avoid. It's there whether you want to show it or not. If you are, you're just trying to ignore, but it, it's impossible. Um, even if you don't go to the museums, it's 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 in your face every day. So I can't imagine what those people are uh, are going through. Um, but the the museums that I visited, one was in Kamaishi uh, on the Sanriku coast, and then the other one was in Rikuzen uh, Takata, and uh, <clears throat> you know. Uh, the, the the two places that really uh, stuck out to me were Rikuzen Takata and Minami Sanniku. Uh, they were totally devastated, and and even still, there's almost nothing there, uh, and and nothing, very very little rebuilt, uh, completely flattened, the 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 coastal area uh, right right in front of the water, is is gone. And, and there's very little rebuilt because why would anybody want to rebuild there again? Or they're still rebuilding and, you know, or people have passed away or they're still displaced or they moved on somewhere else. And, you know, they, they, they're still just totally devastated. Uh, another thing is that uh, they're, what they're doing is they're, those two places, because the, the front of the city was a sea level they, they're raising it 10 meters. They're raising the whole ground 10 meters, but with landfill, and they're still doing it. You can see the machines like fill, filling it up. Uh, and, and they just to make it a little bit safer, uh, raising it those extra 10 meters. They're still building the breakwaters uh, out, in the, out in the water. Minami Sanrik is still not completed. Uh, I think it looks like they're almost done. And then Bikuzen uh, Takata. I think that they're they're finished, but um, that was definitely the the biggest impact. Is you know, ten years later, uh, it's 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 clean. All the the rubble is is gone, and the land is cleared. But uh, there's there's still almost not much there, uh, and you know th those things are haven't been rebuilt, and I wonder if they ever will. Yeah, it's uh, really, really powerful. And in the uh, Seeking Sustainability Live series, I've talked to a few people who've written books about the total <clears throat> disaster and going up after trying to 
help with reconstruction and help support the local people. And this is one of the things that they've said when they've revisited this year is how it's either completely open and empty and nobody's rebuilding or there's just huge walls everywhere and yeah. both experiences are really powerful and it makes you really aware of what devastation happened there that must have been really powerful to see in person yeah um you know that there were even uh, temporary shelters it looked like uh, just makes makeshift shelters uh in kamaishi uh, you know, like uh, the aluminum siding kind of very simple places that people are living. There. I, I'm not sure if it was elderly people living there, but there's still people living like that uh, 10 years later. Uh, and, you know, yeah, you just think, uh, where, where are these people? Where did they go? Are they somewhere else? Did they pass away? Uh, you know, uh, I just can't imagine. Uh, and another thing too, another point is people living there, they have basically resigned themselves to the fact that every generation, at least, they're going to go through a tsunami. If you look back 100 years, uh, I, I know back uh, until at least 1896, I'm sure even before that, since 1896, every generation, there has been a tsunami. Uh, the one in 1896, that one also had the same amount of fatalities as this one, 2011, 21,000. 500 people passed away and, you know, wiped out the communities then. Uh, in 1930, there was another one. I don't recall. I think that was uh, quite far away, but it still uh, affected uh, that coast. 1960 was a Chilean earthquake. And even there, uh, people uh, people passed away uh, from the tsunami coming from, from there. And in uh, 2011, you know, it happened again, just like it did in 1896, the same amount of fatality. So people have resigned themselves to the fact they're going to go through this. If they're going to stay here with their families every generation, it's something that they, they have to go through. Uh, unfortunately, the last one, I guess, was so, uh, that so much time had passed since 1896, just that they didn't imagine it was going to be that big. And that's why uh, there were so many more fatalities this time. They weren't. They weren't prepared. When I talked to Carolyn Pover, <clears throat> who wrote the book One Month in Tohoku, and okay. she ended up going up uh, for a month after she collected loads of donations and, and clothing and supplies that people needed, and she delivered it up to the area, she ended up in a fishing village. And actually, nobody in that village had died because most of them were on their boats. They saw the signs uh, of a tsunami coming and they went further out to sea and survived. Yeah. And people who were in the village knew to escape to higher ground. It was a, a miracle that they all survived. But it, it shows that people, especially living on the coast in Tohoku, they're very accustomed to natural yeah. disasters, right? Yeah. Yeah, and exactly. So it makes it even more sad that there were people who did die and couldn't get to higher ground, right? Do you know what town that was? Do you know which one it was she went to? Yeah, I should know, and I can find out <laughs> very okay. easily. I'll have to review the interview with her. But um, okay, this, yeah, it sounded like a really amazing place. This is uh, another important um, thing kind of related to that. Every city had a different... Uh, height of the wave 
And wherever you go in all those communities along the coast, any building, any kind of major building that's a little bit higher will have the marker. This is where the last one was in 2011. So uh, Kamaishi, the first one I went to, it was seven and a half meters. And, you know, and all the buildings, seven and a half. Uh, another, Rikuzen Takata was 16 and a half meters. Um, and Kes, uh, what was another? The other one was 14 meters in uh, Minami Sanmiku. But the, 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 the highest one was in Miyako, which is northern part. I didn't go there. It was 40.5 meters, four, 40 meters. So that's the variation in, in the height of the wave and whatever the geography, I guess, affects the how high it will it will it will go but wow that's that's almost seven to ten stories seven to eight stories or something like that how can you prepare how can you know you're high enough you can't ever prepare for that that's just incredible um timo says uh, would you say the japanese have an amazing ability to cope after catastrophes this is definitely something i would say about japanese people that i'm often told by japanese people too is that they're very used to natural disasters and they cope with big disasters quite well, uh, very resilient. And that is such an amazing thing about a lot of people, Japanese character. I'm based in Hiroshima. So I have seen, you know, and talked to and know so many Hiroshima people yeah. who have that sense of resilience and the totally. go on with your life and let's move forward and, it's amazing. It's a wonderful thing I've seen over and over. How about you, Dave? I, I think you can answer that question better than me with all those people, people you've spoken to, but uh, I, I definitely agree. Like, you know, you've got tsunamis, you've got earthquakes, uh, you've got volcanoes, uh, you've got all those things. And if you look through the generations, they've all had to go through it and they're still here. There's still a country here. There's still 130 million people here. So, I would say the answer is yes, they, they, they can deal with it. It's just part of life. Dean has a good question here. Have either of you, while scoping outside, ever been at a scene of a newsworthy event? Um, in Hiroshima, I often go to the August 6th um, memorial event. So that's, of course, covered by news around the world. Um, you can catch people doing demonstrations and speeches and interviews with people. Um, that's probably for me the most newsworthy events that I've covered. How about you, Dave? Uh, I'm trying to think. Uh, the the one uh, I was in Myanmar and there was an earthquake, and uh, and the I was I just finished broadcasting uh, in a place called Bagan, and there's uh, all these ancient temples uh, made of stone there, and the earthquake. Crumbled a few of the temples. Like there was so much damage in that area, and I I filmed it. I, I broadcast it live after that. So uh, that that's another thing that shows the power of, of live streaming, uh, bringing people images and and what's going on in a place where news crews took days to get there. It was about three or four days later that uh, uh, international uh, news crews got there, but thanks to live streaming or even just uh, social media and, and the internet, people were posting images and, uh, of, of what happened and what was going on immediately. Yeah, that's amazing. I remember watching your live stream when you were at the glaciers. Is Was that in 
Helsinki, where were you? Like you were somewhere on the North Cape, maybe, and you were documenting glaciers. Were you in Iceland? That was Greenland. Greenland. Uh, yeah, I was in uh, Ilulissat uh, on the uh, west coast of, of Greenland. And that's a, it's a, I think it's the second biggest community in the country. I think second or third biggest in the country. And uh, yeah, they're, I, I don't I have no idea how I got a signal there, but I was right on the edge of the that gorge, uh, looking over the, uh, the ice field there. And yeah, I had a, I had a perfect signal. And uh, it's incredible. And it's, it's something that I think a lot about uh, being focused on sustainability, of course, the melting ice caps and stuff and to know someone and to watch someone live streaming from the glaciers and the the ice kind of moving around. It was an incredible scene. I am so jealous of all your amazing travels. Thank you so <laughs> much for sharing it with us. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> uh, let's go back to some of your photos here. You've got some photos that look like a phone booth. Tell us oh, the yeah. story of this. <clears throat> so uh, in Kamaishi, um, just east of Morioka, in Iwate, there's uh, a, Kamaishi has like several coves. And in one of the coves there, there's a, a gentleman who built this phone booth. Uh, he actually did it for his, a cousin who passed away before the tsunami. So it's it wasn't built for a tsunami victim. Uh, he, he had a cousin who passed away and he, he missed him and he wanted to talk to him. So he built this phone booth with a phone, it's unconnected. So he could talk to his cousin and send him messages uh, and just to kind of console and make him feel better about the situation. And that was in 2010, he built it. The next year the tsunami happened and people started visiting him. They heard about this phone booth and it became connected to that. And so more and more of the, the victims' families would go there and send messages and, and it became international, internationally famous. Uh, I was on the BBC, everything. I think there were the movies made of it too. And people world around the world went there to uh, to go there. If if you you know had a loved one who passed away, they would go there to try and talk to them. So it was uh, wow. It's a beautiful place, very peaceful place in an herb garden, uh, overlooking uh, uh, the coast. There, it's a really really nice place. Wow, that's amazing. And what is the connection uh, with Easter Island? You see some of the more statues there yeah i i didn't understand it at first i went to uh, minami sanriku and i saw these moai statues and uh you know the the japanese like to make everything into a mascot the cute little moai ever so i was like what is that and I, and when you go downtown uh a small downtown there's the moai statue there and it explains that in 1960 the chilean earthquake uh, about 40, I think it was 42 people in Minami Sanriku passed away from that earthquake. And since then, I guess there's been a connection between the communities in Chile and, uh, and Minami Sanriku. And somebody visited a, a dignitary from Chile. So they, they built this monument there uh, for the victims of the that Chilean earthquake in 1960. So they adopted it as the, the mascot and the, the symbol of Minami Sanriku. Wow, that's an amazing story. Yeah, something very unexpected you would not 
think to find in any area of Japan, especially, yeah. in, you know, a rebuilt, devastated area. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah. Um, I also really enjoyed seeing your pictures from, is it Ochijuku, the village in Fukushima. Can you tell <laughs> us about that? So the, the, there's several Juku in, uh, I guess, even between Edo, uh, sorry, Tokyo and uh, uh, Osaka too. And in the north between Aiza and Nikko, uh, Aiza Wakamatsu is a city in the western side of Fukushima. And to Nikko, I guess uh, many, uh, about uh, a few hundred years ago, there were the, they would have to walk. There was a road connecting them. And the Jukus is where they would stop. So Ochijuku is the second stop from Aizu City, and they've they've uh, rebuilt this uh, Juku, the the post town, uh, and it looks like it was uh, you know maybe a couple hundred years ago. So it's uh, all the thatched roof uh, houses, and uh, you can stay there. There's the Minshuku. You can you can stay overnight, um, and you know there's restaurants there too. Uh, so it's, and it's just basically one street. It's a very, very small place, uh, but but it's really beautiful in the mountains. And uh, Fukushima is not usually the first place everybody has in mind, but it's. Uh, I think that makes it a little bit better. It's a little bit more remote, a lot quieter too, especially in wintertime. Yeah, I love seeing uh, you were sampling some of the sake. Uh, sake is really yeah. famous from <laughs> Fukushima. Uh, you were yeah. talking about the thatched roof. So these are very traditional thatch roof. You often do not find in other areas of Japan to have that thick insulated roof. And it's just yeah. so nice and refreshing to see you enjoying travel in another part of Fukushima and to be reminded how big Fukushima is, that it's not just the one devastated by the nuclear disaster no. area. It is actually a very wide, very beautiful prefecture, right? Oh, the, the, there's Mount Bandai, a beautiful mountain, uh, and the Lake Inawashiro right underneath it. Uh, that's a popular uh, vacationing spot, camping spot uh it's just absolutely beautiful stunning place i had no idea i, I this is my first it was my first time in tohoku so i'm kind of a beginner with that but i would definitely go back 100 percent uh unfortunately winter limited what you could do and what was open especially now with covid but 100 percent will go back to fukushima that's such a beautiful natural area there especially in the west uh in aiza yeah uh, we have a question from Timo, which I was going to ask next. Uh, did you get closer to the nuclear plant? Did you go near? No, I, I didn't at all. Uh, the closest I got was Koriyama, which is a stop on the Shinkansen. That's, I think it's 50 kilometers away. Uh, and Aizu Wakamatsu is 100. So I was about 100, 100 kilometers away there. Did you, see, some... did you see dosimeters around? Did you see any... Uh, places where they, because often around the area, they will have dosimeters around because, of course, a lot of residents are very worried about that as well. Well, more worried than visitors, of course. Well, well, well the only thing I did do is that I, I have to admit, I did search online for the, the city's website to see what radiation levels were. Uh, I'm wondering, maybe you can answer this. I'm sure you've interviewed people who, 
who know about this, uh, there's, you know, they give you maybe four or five locations in the city. I don't know how many dosimeters they, they have up. So those four or five places, is there one dosimeter just telling you, okay, this spot is okay. So those five spots are okay, but what about 50 meters away or what about yeah. 100 meters away? No, that, that is a really interesting question. And I interviewed Asby Brown, the lead researcher at Safecast, and their thing is a public... Uh, input of data from around the world after the Fukushima disaster to do uh, radiation readings around Japan, not just around the area. So they have a lot of people moving around and it's, of course, radiation does not move in a concentric circle. So no. there are areas in Chiba or near Tokyo, which had higher readings than places not too far from Fukushima. So it's really... There's a lot that isn't clear and it's no. less than transparent. So it's yeah. nice that there are organizations like that, which are trying to share the information more clearly. That's, that's what I was, yeah, that's, that, that's very important. Uh, I, I was reading past articles too, just to see what the situation was like. I guess they said that in one of the stadiums in Fukushima, they found the hot spot there uh, and, you know, the only reason they did was because there was going to be the Olympic ceremony, the, the torch relay started there. So they, and it was 2019, September, they, they found a hotspot in the parking lot. So do you know what I mean? Are you in a, wh where you're standing, could there be a hotspot there? You never know. They, they can't check everywhere. Yeah. Uh, I think I did see they had like some like 250,000 dosimeters which is a, a lot, but you never, you know, where, where you're standing, is that a hot spot? How much are you getting exposed to? There's so many variables. It's just, that there makes is, it really kind of frightening. I think it, it is really important for people to realize that this is still continuing. This Fukushima disaster is not yeah. completed. It's not over. And yeah. it, there isn't really an end in sight. Um, so it is a continuing process and a continuing problem, even though it's out of the news, which is, a big problem and so if you're interested have a look at safecast, safecast uh, search, okay. surf, search for safecast and they've got all the data uploaded by people around the country um about radiation they're also starting to do things about pollution so definitely okay. a great resource yeah yeah for sure um getting back to some of the areas you saw the miracle pine i i am so amazed by this story can you tell us about the Miracle Pine that you saw? Yeah, so in, in Rikuzen Takata, one of the places that was devastated, uh, uh, I think I mentioned 80% of the the town was, was destroyed, 80% of the buildings. And in the waterfront, there was a forest of 70,000 trees, and the tsunami wiped out that forest, and one pine tree was left standing the one lone pine so the one that i saw there was not the original that that did die the the one that was there was one left but it did die one year later so they put another one there just to kind of uh as a memory of that other one that did survive from all those trees so it's a it's a nice start and the reason why it did survive is one of the pictures i showed you uh i sent you was there was a, another building in front of it uh and it was it was a hostel it was actually a backpack backpackers hostel 
that building blocked any of the trees that were in front of it. So that was another reason why that, that pine was left standing. So they left a hostel there to show that was kind of like a barrier to that too. So they, they, they is that put that a tree. Red, is that the red structure? Was that the building? No, it was a, a beige one. Right oh yeah, yeah, the, the, it's like a long broken one. Yeah, right, that one. So um, they kept that there and they kept the, tr well, the tree as a new one, but just a memory of, of what happened and what was left. And they do have seedlings. If you go to the wall, uh, if I showed the museum picture there for you, kind of the modern museum, you walk up a path to the, to the waterfront on the breakwater. And there's a memorial at the top of the breakwater there. And underneath the breakwater are all the seedlings. So they're trying to rebuild that, that forest uh, right on the waterfront there, but they're, they're very small, but that's a start, I guess. So. Yeah. No, that's, it's great to see, and it must be so powerful to visit there. I'd really like to, to get there someday, and uh, I've talked to uh, Angela Ortiz, who started Place to Grow, an uh, organization helping local communities um, from the devastation, and just keep supporting them. So even though the area is kind of being rebuilt, it's nice that they keep these remnants of what happened so you can see it for your own eyes. I think yeah. this is this is really important in Hiroshima as well, that they keep the Ebam Dome, right? They keep a structure that shows you the devastation and you can mm -hmm. imagine everything around it was flattened. This was the only thing standing. And then because it's still standing, it feels more powerful as a visitor. You know, Hiroshima is a yeah. modern city now. So if that wasn't there, you would have no context in yes, your visit, right? right? So, right. so this gives a sense of powerful context. And it's really interesting, isn't it? I'm glad they've done it that way. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure they're, I mean, I hope they're gonna rebuild it and fill all that in and people are gonna come in. Um, I don't know. Uh, about, I mean, rural Japan in general, I guess the population is going down anyways because the ch uh, younger people are moving to the city. So even without these disasters, that they have that working against it. But I do hope that, I mean, it's, it's, it is a beautiful place, an amazing place. And I hope they do um, fill those spots in and then they do keep that, that structure to, to, like you said, remind people. Of what, I don't think they'll ever will forget, obviously, but for anybody coming there, uh, from outside or anywhere just to remind them what happened here never forget that yeah we have a lot of people asking for your food scopes your japanese favorite food your snacks and drinks so this is obviously something that you do and i i love this about your scopes though dave is that you you have a real variety to engage with people on different levels right like you are showing us japanese heritage and japanese culture and japanese yeah. history right but you're also showing us like the place where you can buy laminate or japanese the latest kit kats you know <laughs> so i love that you're you're doing kind of a diverse stream so that there's a little bit of something for everyone. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, I think it's uh, I think it's important to try and connect with as many people as possible. And I mean, it's again we, we're lucky to live here for many reasons because the culture is there's so many aspects to Japanese culture that you can you can bring to people. And I just I'm taking something from everywhere and trying to you know to show it to people. So that that's just. Uh, 
I'm just appreciative of where I am and the things that we can pull from it and to show the world. So, Yeah, awesome. Uh, some of the other scopes that I've really enjoyed that you've done recently on your other travels, uh, of course, we talked about Hakuba a little bit. You had yeah. such beautiful photos from there. Can you tell us a little bit about going to Nikko or Hakuba Nagano? Uh, Hakuba was where the the ski the ski resort i went to that that beautiful view uh i saw it on i think i saw it on instagram it was just a place that i've i found on instagram and there's a i mean it's a pretty simple place it's city bakery i guess it's a new york city chain they built that uh, lookout there over the mountains and it's on Iwa, iwatate mountain i think it is and uh, you go, you can you can go up there as a tourist too. I mean, most people go there for skiing in the winter, but you can go up there as a tourist and just enjoy the day there, looking over that beautiful view. And uh, yeah, it's, it's a great day, and it's and it's popular all year round. The green, the view in the springtime is amazing too. I'm definitely going to go there in the springtime. Yeah. Uh, so that's that's a, that was a beautiful spot. Nico is uh, in Tochigi, just uh, north of Tokyo. There, about one hour and a half north. And it was, it's a World Heritage Site. Uh, Toshogu is where Tokugawa Ieyasu is buried. And uh, that's that's what it's known for. And it's just the most, the most lavish temple in Japan. It's it's very unlike other Japanese temples. Uh, most Japanese temples are quite simple in their construction, but that is just such a lavish temple. I guess I, I said that it's suitable for uh, a shogun for the the most famous shogun to be buried there uh something suitable for him and uh what what he accomplished and what you know what he represented so yeah beautiful uh let me see if i can find one of your photos here so going into toshogu and the beautiful uh tori gate it looks like maybe a stone or cement i want to say stone tori gate at the beginning and then when you went inside yeah such ornate towers and buildings oh, wow. that was amazing trip yeah all there's the storehouses um the the paintings and the, the carvings uh, in the wood even just the stable where he kept his horse is just um so beautiful the beautiful carvings on there uh and then the the gate uh i forget the name of the gate but uh just uh, that was the most ornate gate i've, I've you, you just don't see that in japan that, that level of detail and uh, uh, luxury, I guess, is just so beautiful. Yeah, gorgeous. Let me see if I can bring up the gate here for people to see. Yeah. Beautiful. And so much detail. Yeah, so it, it looks like it's in such good condition. Did you find that? That upkeep? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure they, uh, they, they've, uh, restored it and, and maintain it too. Uh, and, and again, traveling now during the pandemic and in a time when there's no tourists there, that's actually very, there's very few people there too that you can actually enjoy it. On any other time, I've heard uh, it's not like that. <laughs> so my my sense of these places, and even what I what I just what I showed people. My, my sense of how busy they really are is kind of warped because of the, the situation and the circumstances now. Yeah. So, 
Yeah, one of the uh, things about Japanese temples, and were these buildings, uh, were they made of wood? When you visited the temples and shrines, were the inside all made of wood? It looks like it. Yes, yes, they were, yeah. And uh, right. so Asby Brown is an architect and he studied Japanese temple design and carpentry. And he mm -hmm. explained to us that all the pieces are interlocking. They're fitted together like jigsaw puzzles, that there are no nails. And no the reason nails, yeah. they did that was so they could be moved in case of a natural disaster uh, or uh, if one piece was rotten <clears throat> and the rest was okay, just replace that one piece. And it's absolutely incredible, isn't it? That these buildings have lasted a thousand years and they're just so beautifully fitted together perfectly. The one, yeah, the one the one thing I remember was that I went to Yamagata. I, sent you, I, I think I sent a photo of the pagoda in the middle of the forest. And also in Nikko, there's also another five-story pagoda. Both of those structures, they have a, in the center of the structure, there's like a pendulum hanging there, a massive piece of wood hanging down. It's not touching the ground. And the reason why it's there is if, if there is an earthquake, it'll stabilize. It won't fall right over. It'll just kind of bounce around uh, that around that pendulum and keep it standing, which That's is amazing. amazing. That's amazing. I also, I really loved your visit to the tall cedars, the forest, and then the shrine. Can you tell us about that? Uh, that's in Togakushi, uh, Togakushi Shrine, which is in uh, a mountain outside of, uh, of Nagano. It took about one hour to go there. It's something I found out later was a very popular spot. And sometimes the traffic is, uh, you know, backed up for hours. But again, because of the situation, there was nobody there. Winter, there's obviously fewer people, but it's uh, it, there's there's a series of three shrines up the mountain. Uh, there's the Okusha is the the one that I went to, the farthest one at the top, the most scenic and the most beautiful. Uh, it's two kilometers lined with massive cedars, and uh, there's a there's a gate. And at the top of the of the at the top of the mountain, two well, I shouldn't say top of the mountain, at the end of the route. There's the, the temple at the top. You're supposed to visit uh, in that order, the highest temple first, then the Chusha, which is the middle temple, and then the lower one at the at the bottom. But I visited just that one. I just wanted to take some photos, and and uh, it was the most scenic one. But, uh, yeah, that was really beautiful. Tok Togakushi, it's called. Yeah, that's gorgeous. And I love the the crunching through the snow, uh, going slowly through the pines, and then this amazing bright red shrine gate. Uh, yeah. So beautiful. It is, yeah. Really beautiful. Yeah. So um, tell us a little bit about your live streaming strategy. I think I've worked out some of your strategy. So you start kind of at the wow point and then you wander around and then you end again at the same wow point so that people who join at different times um, might be able to enjoy the wow, the big site, but not just have it at the beginning or the end, but you have it, you go around it, you come back to it. Is that <laughs> your plan? It seems really good. I don't know. I don't, the secret is I have no plan. That's my plan. <laughs> 
No. I just hope to God that there's a signal and then uh, I keep walking. <laughs> no, but I, 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 I do, I do absolutely focus on visuals. Yeah. I mean, it's a visual medium. Uh, you know, that, that's one thing people are saying, uh, uh, talking about clubhouse and Twitter spaces, people are like, is this the end of live streaming? Are people not going to watch anymore? And, you know, s someone said to me, and I think too, the visual medium is that doesn't, encompass that those twitter spaces and clubhouse that it will never uh, overtake that and people always want that visual aspect of it so just focus on that and bring them the most amazing images that you can I, yeah I, I do I, I do i always think about framing i always think about framing how's this going to look to them somebody enjoying it at home if they're at their tv if they're looking at their phone how, how to how am i going to keep them in the story and uh, keep that the path going, you know, keep the narrative moving uh, as much as I can forward, and no, no dead spots. And keep them engaged. Uh, that's 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 really important. So, yeah, I I think you're you're also so good at even while you're going, even while you're concentrating on something else, uh, you're still responding to everybody and saying, "Hey, welcome, nice to see you." Oh, it's been a long time. You've got a great rapport with all of your audience, and it's so impressive. I sometimes worry about you because sometimes you're walking down steep steps while you're doing it. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, please watch where you're going, Dave. <laughs> yeah, my mo my mother watches while I do it too, so she's feeling even worse. Yeah. No, it's yeah, it's. I mean, that's that's part of it. No matter where you are, you got to engage with the people. I mean, it's not it's not. Uh, it's not like I think, okay, I have to engage with them. These are, you know, these are people that we've known, I've known for six years. We've been doing this for, on this app for six years and you build relationships with them. You don't, I don't, some people I've said, I don't even know what they look like. I don't know what their name is, but they, they come and they watch and they, and they engage and they want to hang out and they want to see the beautiful views and, and they enjoy it. So, and I, I appreciate that. And I enjoy their company too. It's, that's what makes it. Uh, if if they weren't there, it, it wouldn't it wouldn't be the same. I used to travel alone. This is one thing. Uh, this is why I do it. I used to travel alone all the time before live streaming, and with this medium, I don't have to travel alone again. I can be with my mo my mother's watching, uh, and these other friends of mine are watching around the world too. We can all we can all travel together. That's awesome. Um, I'm showing your one of your latest streams on the following the Sakura around Tokyo. You found some great spots. Uh, tell us your your insider tips. Where are the best places to see Sakura? And kind of everywhere looks crowded, but kind of avoid the crowds a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm a pretty I'm pretty well a beginner with with Tokyo. I'm not really good at the the deep kilt, uh, deep Tokyo, but I, I just uh, I, I hit the main spots. And again, because because of the situation, I think in any other circumstances, uh, outside of the pandemic and outside of no tourists being in here, I would probably never come here. But uh, Shinjuku Goen was um, what a beautiful spot. I've never been there; it was my first time, and that is just. I mean, it's like yeah, they say the Central Park of Tokyo. What a beautiful open space. Uh, to wander and all the, the beautiful cherry trees, so much, uh, so much space there. It, it wasn't that busy. I don't. I, I have a feeling that any other time of year it would be 
insane, but it was actually, you know, I had my own space there, so I wasn't too worried. Uh, around the Royal Palace too, on the moats around there was, was really, really beautiful. Uh, and uh, where did I go? Yes, uh, Yasukuni Shrine. That was a beautiful spot too. Uh, again, yeah, not too busy. Yasukuni Shrine is a little uh, politically sensitive, shall we say? Yeah. Um, but it just looked gorgeous. So you you hit all the big places. Uh, you also went to Ueno Park, which has it had a lot of flack yeah. last year. They tried to close it because too many people were going during the coronavirus time. Um, oh, really? But, you know, I think we're a little bit more calm this year about it. People are yeah. wearing masks. People are social distancing. Uh, some horrible stories last spring in Japan, they cut down all these tulip parks or yeah. places that had special blooms that people would want to come and see. I'm so glad they're not cutting down any cherry trees. <laughs> oh, that would be awful. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know why they're, yeah, they're, they're, they're discriminating against the tulips and <laughs> I don't know why. I'm not sure. Yeah. I remember that. I remember that from last year and the, uh, the other red flowers the in the in the fall i forget what they're called the the red flowers that bloom there the wild ones do you remember those yeah there's there's so many great blossoms in japan uh we're running we've got about five more minutes one okay. interesting scope which i think you did last year which i want you to comment on is you did a 360 degree camera experience inside a nuclear bomb shelter oh yeah it was incredible how did you do that and tell us about that story i actually did that for uh a, a gig i got i had a freelance gig uh with a phone company they wanted me to experiment with their camera and and do it in different circumstances so one of the things i pitched to them was I got this bomb shelter. I found this bomb shelter maker. Why don't we go in there and film it and they'll explain it and people can feel like they're right in there, what it's like. And they said, yeah, okay, go for it. So I went to, uh, it's a place in Kobe, a family business. They make bomb shelters. I, you know, I can't, I can't remember the name off the top of my head. That was a few years ago. I actually uploaded it last year, but I did it like three or four years ago. Uh, and, um, so we we went in there and and they uh they they explain the they explain how they make it uh, all the parts where it's from how to survive in that bomb shelter and it, it's it's under their house it's an actual functional uh bomb shelter and then at the end i actually climbed out of it like they would too you actually have to climb out break out from the back of it is uh, is how you do it so yeah it was a, it was a great uh, great experience and got some really cool footage and very educational too really educational experience how to survive a, a nuclear blast and it's yeah the one big thing for me was feeling so claustrophobic even though i wasn't there and you were you were documenting it but it was the one feeling for me was that i would rather die than stay in there <laughs> it was so <laughs> hard to even watch the it's yeah. such a small space right but it was so interesting and you were using this really interesting 
camera, which I'd never experienced on YouTube even, as you're watching, you can hit the up, down, side to side button and turn the camera around completely. That is yeah. really cool. Do you think we'll see more of this technology? I think as as, uh, as the speeds get, as, as uh, the picture quality gets better, right now, uh, I think the highest I've seen is uh, 10K. 10k uh, if you buy vr goggles you can actually you can actually put on goggles and watch that movie and move your head around if you have vr goggles like oculus wow. and you can actually look around but the resolution is too low so it's not it's 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 not too bad but as that gets higher and you know the the resolution becomes like you know 4k quality then then it's going to be amazing it's almost like you're you're there so I'm looking forward to that. VR is the future, absolutely. Definitely VR is the future. Uh, I don't know if you've ever tried the Oculus. Once you put it on, I realize, oh my God, this is the future. This is unbelievable. Yeah. And it's not even, and, and it's in its infancy too. So wow. as no, it gets I'm, better. I'm really excited about the future of, of live streaming. Uh, some people feel nauseous when they put on the VR goggles. Um, yeah. There's there's a woman who's been in the series she's a japanese teacher but her specialty is teaching language to gamers and so she's teaching the japanese language you would need to do vr games and stuff Aki's oh wow she's amazing oh Aki. yeah aki Ako. yeah yes i follow her yeah, yeah she's awesome yeah, um, she is good. But do you do you foresee that happening more for live streaming that we're going to see more of these 360 type cameras even on our smartphones? Are they going to adapt to that? Um, I, I'm, I bet they will find some way to incorporate. Well, th actually, uh, the 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 freelance job that I had was a 360 camera that you stick onto your smartphone. So yeah, I that that is probably something uh, that is going to happen and well you know even now you can uh you can just use a, a a 360 camera on its own to to upload things to to youtube which is what people do now but yeah i i see more and more people um with they make their own clubs and lounges uh with other people with vr sets and they're all hanging out together they're having virtual conferences uh one guy he's a popular dj he has a dance club so he, he plays the music and people are dancing, their avatars are dancing. <laughs> so you're in your room dancing alone, but really you're dancing with other people too. So wow. possibilities are endless. I think that's definitely the future. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, that is our hour. Thank you so much, Dave. Thank you for having me, Joy. That's awesome. And thank you for all the insights that you give us about culture, uh, not only traditional culture, but pop culture um insights into daily life and intrigue and news you've got a real great variety of things on your live streams so i really appreciate all the work you're doing dave keep it up thank you so much you too joy thank, thank you so much for having me and thank you everybody for joining today and all your awesome comments really enjoyed talking and engaging with you guys hopefully we can do this again sometime dave Meet up For again sure. on HAPS. Have another discussion. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's awesome. All right, everyone, we're going to end it here. I'm doing more live streams uh, next week from my usual ecam. But next Friday, I'm meeting on here for another interview with 
Louise Puppy uh, from New Zealand. And we're going to talk about uh, sustainable travel ideas in New Zealand and Japan and compare and contrast. So that'll be fun on HAPS again next week. But、uh, from next Monday, I have、uh, Tyler E. She's an Osaka based fashion, sustainable fashion guru. Okay. And on Tuesday, I'm talking to Winifred Bird. She wrote an interesting book about eating wild in the forest in Japan. So, scavenging for forest food.、Oh. So, that'll be interesting. And then on next Wednesday, the 31st, I'm talking with Lauren about、uh, renovating an old minka. And she's an artist who does a lot of the work herself. So, that'll be really interesting. Great. Thank you, everybody. Please join again. Have a great day. Thanks, Dave. Bye bye. I hope you enjoyed the episode today. If you want to learn more about the work that I do, have a look at inboundambassador.com. You can also sponsor the work that I'm doing on the YouTube channel, Patreon, Buy Me a Coffee, Coffee, or Haps. Have a great day.